this question of should you want to be a vampire, I think is an interesting one. And no matter, and, and there's a lot of different forms vampirism takes, but the appeal of immortality, but also the loss of your human life, which like Edward points out, like your relationship to your parents, you know, like your normal human life experiences are going to be gone now and replaced. How do you feel about it, man? Yeah. Would you do it? Let's bring back our segment. <laughs> would you do it? Absolutely. You know, it's been a little while since we've brought that up. Friends, episode 262 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Stephanie Meyer's 2005 novel, Twilight. The long-awaited arrival of the sparkly vampires has come. This was a voted-on project for our first quarterly project of the year, voted by the patrons. I'm excited to talk about it. I'd never read this book before, never seen the movie. So as far as like history of the material, I'm brand new to this stuff. Of course, I've heard of it and I've seen it in pop culture and I've seen it in breakdowns of other videos and like people re- reacting to it. I know its reputation, I guess is what I'm saying, but I never actually read it myself. I've never seen the movie. So, uh, you know, this is just going to be on the book and I'm excited to get into it, man. I didn't know if this day would ever come when we started the <laughs> podcast. This seemed like something that that listeners would want to hear us talk about and and it kind of took us five years to get here and every single girl and some boys that were in my grade and in my similar grades to me growing up were obsessed with this and so this was a kind of a huge looming thing in like middle school I remember it it coming out people reading it and then I remember it hitting really hard in high school like many of these I think came out when I was in high school so so this book came out in 2005 so where would you have been middle school and high school for me yeah see and that was college for me so that's why i think i didn't it was it was like i was too old for it i I, you know i'm a man so like i think in multiple ways it wasn't something that i was interested in but i did know people who read it right and and i knew a lot of women who either read it when they were younger or read it you know in their early 20s and, and were enjoying it then um and one of the things i wanted to do was make sure we represented that side of things so i did reach out to our discord and I got some of our uh, women listeners to uh, give me some feedback about their experience reading the book and how they felt about it. So I, at some point, I will read some of those uh, responses. But before I get into that, I just want to like ask you uh, what your general thoughts were. What, how did you feel about this book? Because um, you'd seen the movie, right? But not not the book. Yeah, so I've seen the movie. And, you know, I think it'll be cool to have that representation because obviously this is something that was like, it was really easy to bounce off of if you're a guy, especially in this time period, and say like, that's not for me necessarily. Um, wasn't really willing to engage with it. I I liked the fact that it's like a genre romance kind of in, in ways. You know, you've got like your your supernatural element baked into it. And, and that was something that I liked. But um, the reading it this time... I was struck by how, and you got to remember where I was when this movie came out too, because like I, all the girls that I knew that I was interested in talking to were all infatuated with this. So I was looking to this and saying like, why is that? Right. So you wanted to be Edward Cullen is what you're saying. 
I don't know. I and to be perfectly <laughs> honest, I always feel like I, I align more with the the werewolf people. So there's like oh uh, uh, Jacob, right? Although we don't get a lot of that in this first book, but yeah, there's a little bit of it. I go back and forth on it. Not that I feel like I'm I'm on either team, but that's another <laughs> thing we'll have to talk about when we get to the movies is how how massive that phenomenon was. Although and, I assume that doesn't happen much until the second movie or something, because it really wasn't a big big thing in this book either no no it doesn't seem to be but but in reading it i guess i just a <laughs> couple of quick reactions i think that it's catered to a very specific age demo i think it's definitely geared towards young girls which i think is is awesome and i think it's cool to have that kind of representation and it, it is this like wish fulfillment kind of story absolutely and we talk about it all the time with wish fulfillment stories that we love growing up that are more male centric so it's cool to have that here, especially for something genre that that we tend to like. Um, so I, I commend it for being that. But also reading this book, there were times that it felt really juvenile. <laughs> the There were times that the, the prose was kind of striking me that way. And, and there's one moment, I don't want to pick on the prose necessarily too much because look at what it did. Look what this story went on to do with the plot and and what how, how big of a ph- phenomenon it was. But I've never read a story about vampires that was more interested in talking about vehicles. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> there are so many moments that are talking about his Volvo, this BMW, my truck, and this converter thing that Ed Jacob needs and this thing. with. And I was like, I, I don't understand the fascination with talking about cars in this book. And it felt like every other scene, there was something where they were in the car, they were jumping in the car, the Jeep with the big the big wheels. And- there are a lot of car scenes, you're right. But and talking about cars, and I'm like, what does this have to do with vampires? <laughs> totally, man. Wow, there's a lot. I mean, a, a lot of there to react to. A lot of thoughts I have are are, are similar, but yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, I'm the writer on the podcast, and when we say writer and filmmaker, and like my degree, uh, my both my bachelor's degree and my graduate degree are both in writing. This book breaks almost every like beginner rule you get for prose. Um, now, I won't say it breaks storytelling rules necessarily. Most of them um, are followed. You know, I think the plot of the book, while being kind of sparse early on and focusing mostly just on the developing romance, um, I think it, I, all of it's like it's the storytelling is there. And I think it's compelling. Every take about Twilight feels like it's been done. And there's nothing new I'm going to be bringing to the conversation by talking about the prose. Um, you know, everybody, everybody, that's the number one critique when you read about it, poorly written. Um, and what does that mean? So it, it's full of adjectives and adverbs. And I I don't like criticizing stuff for adjectives, especially, um, because lots of things are filled with those, but like, it's the way you use them. It's the dialogue tags. It's just like basic rules about showing and telling. There's so much telling in this book like emotions they're just told to us repeatedly you know how how bella's feeling how you know edward is appearing to to feel to her um it's just so on the nose this book is very earnest it's very Mm -hmm. straightforward you you don't get a sense that the author is in any way misleading you (laughs) um it's like she's just being transparent and being like this is a angsty teenage girl who's having all these feelings, they're overwhelming, and I'm just going to repeatedly talk about feelings. Yeah. But, like, when we're talking about bad writing, it's like, yeah, this stuff bothers me, um, and it bothers a lot of people. You know, it's like, how many times do we have to hear about Edward Cullen's crooked smile? 
and um, how he smiles crookedly, and then he has a crooked smile, and then his eyes. Uh, how many times do we talk about his fucking eyes? He has piercing eyes, he has wide eyes, penetrating eyes. His eyes are wide, and then they're narrow, and then his eyes are suddenly fierce, and there's just so much of eye writing. Um, it, 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 and then, like, the dialogue tags are just wrong. Like, the, that's not even how... She uses dialogue tags that are not even dialogue tags. So uh, examples I have is, no, he grinned. So she's saying he grinned as a dialogue tag. That is not a that is not a speech. That is a physic. You know what I mean? I understand why someone would write that because I and I kind of get it, but it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of yeah. sense. Pretty good. I smiled. You know, like stuff like that. Like yeah. Well, I, I don't want to. So we've talked about pros. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's move on. We'll from put that. it in a box. Move it. Move on. And the reason I bring all that up is is it did bother me, and I listened to the audiobook, and I think that was sort of essential to my ability to let it go after a bit and just kind of let the story happen and not worry about it. Because I think if I was reading a physical copy of this one, I would be bogged down with that because that stuff would like set off alarms every time I encountered it. And instead, most of it I was able to kind of ignore because it was going by in an audiobook, right? Keep the pace moving. Um, so if that stuff bothers you, maybe I recommend the audio version if you did want to check this out. All that being said about the pros... The resulting reading is still very accessible. It's almost transparent. It's like it doesn't get in the way other than for me because it's setting off alarms. But like I think for most readers, there's nothing about this that's really upsetting you. And you're able to just like connect directly with Bella and not think about sentences at all and not think about that stuff. And also think about the demo that I talked about. Exactly. And that works perfectly for young readers. Um, And so, like, I don't know that it's... I don't know that the prose here is much worse than something like Ready Player One, which is a book that we both had a good time with. Wish fulfillment to the max. And I think Ready Player One is a really good comparison book because it's absolutely wish fulfillment and it's just like you know what if pop culture was like a a way to like positively affect the world and like save people and it actually mattered and you could be a hero all based in your pop color pop culture knowledge and this is just wish fulfillment about like dating the sexiest like most mysterious dude in school who like doesn't seem to like anyone else and you know like he comes and saves you and he gives you a magical life and it's just exciting and it's being swept off your feet and it's kind of this like elemental romance that that harkens back to a lot of other romances that 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 have worked throughout time. Um, and there's just something that is exciting about that and appeals to many, many people. Um, and I'm not going to hold that against anybody. You know what I mean? Like I, I totally get that kind of reading and I like those reading experiences myself when it aligns with the kind of stuff that like I'm interested in. Totally. Yeah. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. I now that we've talked about those those certain things that sort of, like you said, are setting off alarms or or red flags for us. And it's funny because like most people don't care about that. Like, I, I mean, not most people. I shouldn't say most people, but definitely like most people in this target demo probably don't care about it. It only matters if you if you're not like already predisposed to like whatever the, the general story is. And that's that's one thing that I think the story once the world has been set up, I actually think some of the vampire stuff is really fun. I actually think like the now remember I was watching this for the first time trying to watching and then I hadn't read it. So that's my that's my frame of reference trying to figure out how much of a cheat code 
Edward Cullen is as a as a romantic interest for for a young girl because he's 100 years old so he's incredibly nuanced and incredibly like he's he's got like a background in being one smooth and having being a cultured person and understanding like having a good frame of reference but then that also leads to the weirdness of he's 100 years old and she's 17 and how that just always inherently is a weird thing with vampire stories absolutely Um, well and especially when when a protagonist is young yeah and that's why i couldn't relate to a character like edward earlier you're like oh so you wanted and i you wanted to be like edward because that's what the girls were looking at but it's impossible it to be a 17 year old boy and that's what we see in this story repeatedly jacob and some of the other guys that that are interested in her can't compete with somebody who's that uh sophisticated and 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 at that point in their life so interesting how that develops in the story and i again i like a lot of the vampire stuff i like other than i think the sparkling is the biggest thing that people point to and it kind of gets a bad rap but it's just easy to shit on like i don't i don't know it see so like within the context of this story it's fine now if you were to like transplant it into like a stephen king novel yeah it wouldn't work you know what i mean like that's not but that's not what this is this isn't this isn't even Anne rice who is obviously, you know, like the other massively famous uh, vampire fiction author. Um, and, and the writing is not even similar. I, I, you know, I think Anne Rice, as far as like we're talking about style of writing is, you know, really good at, at this stuff. Like her prose is really rich. Um, some people find it kind of purple and, and over the top. So I bet you Stephanie Meyer is a fan of Anne Rice. You know, probably. I don't know, because we'll get into who, Stephanie Meyer. She's she's an interesting person. <laughs> we talked about the writing and I'm curious, like how young she was when she wrote this. And there's so much that I'm that I want to know. But I want to talk about one more thing that that I like and I want to talk about is I think this book does do an effective job of, sh- of showing like how fraught young love can be and how like everything really can feel like it's the end of the world. And everything really does feel like this and the heightened emotions and angst just frustration and oh everything's so big yeah stuff with your parents and and like how dramatic everything needs to be in it's it. often it's your first time experiencing everything you're experiencing at this moment in your life it's your first time it's your first love it's your first time being at this stage of your life and then this p- moment in school which only comes once right like being a senior in high school or junior in high school however old she is i think she goes to prom so probably senior like that is a once thing you get to do one time it's a very um powerful moment that everybody sort of remembers what they were like at that age it's yeah it's totally um aligned with that that moment in life and i think the writing does a great job at evoking that we often are just bundles of melodramatic emotion when we're that i know i was i absolutely was melodramatic when i was that age yeah yeah this story does a good job of capturing that and then that's what people are responding to and and i you know she did a good job with building a world that played up those elements and then was interesting enough to lead us down this path where she's getting protected by a, bu- a group of vampires at the end. Like, that's really fun and cool. Like, like that's just like, it's an interesting premise to have them all trying to protect her where typically vampires are like preying on people. And, you know, I think that's fun. And, and it, 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 I like where it leaves the story with her. Almost, you, you think she's going to become a vampire at the end of the story, at least I did first time I saw it because it's the perfect moment for her. She might die. But yeah, I mean, I guess I won't spoil the ending, but you don't really know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I think it's I think spoilers are fair at this point. It's such a massive property. I'm one of the only people alive who probably hasn't, hasn't seen it. So um, I think most people are fine with it. We will move through it chronologically uh, in greater detail. I do have a lot of thoughts about the way horror tropes are being used and um, how they, you know, because we're both horror fans. Like we like 
a lot of adult dark horror and to see a lot of these tropes, you know, for lack of a better term, defanged and brought into a romance novel and made accessible and made not that scary. Um, that makes a lot of horror fans really upset and you'll find so much vitriol about this kind of stuff. And like, I feel like there was this big movement to like make vampires scary again after this, because they, people got so mad that they were these heartthrobs who, who had no like real danger to them and all this stuff. Right. I can remember a period of time where it was like vampires and zombies were hitting at the same time. And like people got really soured on vampires and zombies. And I was like, but there's, there's so much great, out there with those two genres and people just got jaded on it and then yeah we i think we've seen a a reclaiming of that of that horror space with with those specific types of creatures yeah i mean so many things to talk about um you're talking about this like young love and a hundred year old vampire and i don't want to harp on this too much because i ultimately don't think it's that interesting of a topic to get into but much ink has been spilled about this right and you can look at it as and, and throughout, I had kind of two things in my mind. I had my, the author intention is clearly that Edward is basically a teenager who has been frozen in a certain maturity level and, and a certain attitude. He's kind of this gloomy, melancholy teenager who just has been that for a hundred years. But it, clearly in Stephanie Meyer's mind, he really is a teenager. And that makes his relationship with Bella not that you know, creepy to her. Like, clearly that's the intention of the author is to have it be like maybe a little bit scandalous, but that's about it. Then, of course, there's the other side of my mind that's like thinking about alternate versions of this story where a hundred year old dude is actually got, you know what I mean? Like is maturity level of a hundred year old person who could totally be manipulating someone and be a predator. And like, there's all these things that could be really, I mean, we see that in vampire stories too. Like that, that is a story we've seen before. Well, let the right one in as what I kept coming back to. And that, you know, obviously ages down the vampire, but it's a similar idea of like, this vampire has been frozen at a child age and befriends another child, but also this vampire is very old. So like, you know, and then Anne Rice deals with this, with the child in, in um, Interview with the Vampire. So there's all kinds of, this is this is well-trodden ground. So ultimately, like if this could be a whole episode about that, or it could just be something we kind of touch on lightly. So I just kind of want to touch on it lightly. Um, I, I think I'm going to focus more on like what the author intended because that other stuff is more like reading between the lines. It's like uh, trying to bring something exterior into the, into the text. that's not really intended. It just is something that gets baked into it. Um, and it's like a different story. You could write that story. It would be a very different one. Anyway, I think it's time to focus on the feedback we got. So if you want to join our discord, just let us know. We'll send you a link. Um, we had people write in on our Discord. Uh, we had many women and people of different experiences and different backgrounds than us uh, weigh in on their experiences with Twilight. And I think that's interesting to get into. So Arcblade wrote, I read it in my mid-20s. I liked it despite myself. It's junk food in literary form. I think that's a you know a recurring theme we'll see a lot. Uh, so I'm just going to use usernames. Sweatpants are real pants. I think I was 13-ish, prime target audience. Fully agree with junk food and literary form. It wasn't my usual type of read at the time, but I loved it. I knew it was trash, but I loved it anyways. I always had a thing for it's so bad it's good. Uh, Mandala. I read it when I was in my early 20s when it came out. I had two kids and I was really young, so I didn't read that much when I had babies, so I needed a nice escape with brain candy. All the red flags went right over my head, probably because I knew nothing about red flags and missed them myself with my ex-husband, who was my husband at the time. 
Anyway, I think it worked on the, the teen to early 20s demo. I also brought my books to my sister, who was living in the Ronald McDonald house with her newborn and who was in care. She was so depressed and distraught, I said, here, read these. They're really fun and a good escape. My sister has never been a reader, and she read them and cried and thanked me for giving them to her because she thought they were a good distraction. As bad as they are, they did provide a lot of distraction and comfort to a lot of girls and women. They inspired a lot of people, too, because the author wrote the books as a distraction when she was a a mom of young boys. I think it's important to include that discussion instead of incessantly roasting on them. Um, And then Akagi FD wrote, I was in my early 20s when I read the Twilight books. Junk food in literary form is the perfect description. I couldn't put the books down, even though they weren't really my cup of tea. My friend teaches middle school, and she recommended them to me since all the kids in her school were reading them. So I think all that like kind of sums up that like distraction, it's fun. It's not something you need to think about a lot. You turn your brain off, just lose yourself to it. Yeah, I would I would say, too, that I think a lot of people that follow our podcast happen to be and, and tend to be big readers as yeah. well. And and because I can remember people who who didn't think of it as brain candy, especially in my when we were when I was like sure. a teenager and, and it was the best book that they'd ever read at the time. And so like there's there and I think the popularity of something like this, like whether people see it as brain candy and share it around, whether whether it is brain candy or whatever it is, it, it can take on a, a bigger meaning when when it reaches it's like a Harry Potter or something like that that Absolutely. reaches audiences that otherwise don't read. It's an important sort of story. And I think that's something else that's cool to hear. Um, you know, people sharing it around and it becomes like a sense of community. And I'll add in, I asked my wife these same questions and she said um, when she was 13, 14, she read them and loved them, you know, and she said, you know, she looks back at them now and sees how like poorly they were written and she had fun with them. They were wish fulfillment. She identified with Bella as being sort of an outcast, being clumsy, being just kind of like the new kid, like that kind of stuff like that. That's broadly appealing. And then, yeah, like, you know, the mysterious heartthrob, uh, taking attention, you know, showing you attention, falling in love with you, like that's appealing. And she had a good time with them. It's that seems to be a very common experience. And, and as you're talking about like new readers, I think this is a, you know, one thing we got to give books like this and Harry Potter credit for is they are gateway books for so many people to get into reading period. There are so many readers who probably got started on their literary journey reading a book like this because it's very easy to read. It's accessible. It's so much different than the stuff you're reading in school at that age, right? Um, It feels that way. You know, that is invaluable, I think, especially as we talk about reading as a thing that is constantly in some manner of peril in our society and, you know, whether or not people are going to continue reading, right? Um, This is the kind of stuff that we is going to hold an important place and um, provide that gateway and that pathway to to being a lifelong reader for many people. I know that like because there are so many other stimuli out there, there are there's like this this messaging that that reading's going to go somewhere. But to me, it's just it's funny that it's such an irreplaceable thing. I can understand when people get out of practice and they're not reading, but as soon as you pick up a book, it just gives you a different experience than anything else. So this this idea that like reading's going to go somewhere has, has always been kind of funny to me. Like you're going to read something like like it's a it's a fundamental part of the human experience i think at this point we're always reading stuff on our phones you know i totally i totally agree but you know the form that reading takes changes over time audiobooks i i love audiobooks a lot of people get snobbish about 
audiobooks not being real readings, which I completely disagree with. But like, this is the kind of stuff that we go through and over again. There, used to, there was a big pushback against ebooks for a long time as not being real reading that you had to have a physical book in your hand for some reason. Yeah. It's just funny how that stuff uh, always crops up again and again. All right, so I think it is time to get into our background on Stephanie Meyer and the development of Twilight. So, Stephanie Meyer is an American novelist and film producer. She is best known for writing the vampire romance series Twilight, which has sold over 160 million copies, with translations into 37 different languages. Meyer was the best-selling author of 2008 and 2009 in the U.S., having sold over 29 million books in 2008 and 26.5 million in 2009. Meyer was included in the Time Magazine's list of 100 Most Influential People in 2008 and was included in the Forbes Celebrity 100 list of the Most Powerful Celebrities in 2009, her annual earnings exceeding $50 million. Uh, Stephanie Morgan was born on December 24, 1973. So your question about how old she was when she wrote this, she would have been 30. That's how old I am. Yep. Almost exactly. Yep. As of a few days ago. <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday, by the way. Thanks. Um... She was born in Hartford, Connecticut, the second of six children to a financial officer, Stephen Morgan, and Candy Morgan, a homemaker. Meyer was raised in Phoenix, Arizona, and attended the Chaparral High School in Scottsdale, Arizona. So, Arizona connection. Uh, our, Our main character, Bella, is from Arizona. Phoenix, yeah. In 1992, Meyer won a National Merit Scholarship, which helped her fund her undergraduate studies at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, where she received a BA in English Literature in 1997. Meyer met her future husband in Arizona and they, when they were both children. They married in 1994 when Meyer was 21. Together, they have three children, as sort of hinted by her going to BYU. Meyer's membership in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS Church, shaped her novels. Themes consistent with her religion, including agency, mortality, temptation, and eternal life, are prominent in her work. She's a Mormon. Um, Mormonism, she she doesn't really love that it's brought up so frequently when people discuss her work. She says, like, you know, a lot of other authors, their religious beliefs aren't, aren't brought in to those discussions. Um, and that's fair, but also, you know, Mormonism is a very prominent religion that is very controversial, especially in its anti-LGBTQ stances. Extremes in any religion, you know, can, can be this way, but... but yeah, you know. and people pay these, like, tithes, where it's, like, 10% of earnings or something go to the church. So people look at, like, really successful figures and will, you know, I think rightfully criticize them for, even if they say that they're not something, they're donating massive amounts of money to a church that is uh, anti-LGBTQ. Sure. Recently, there was this big article written about Brandon Sanderson, which um, I wish was actually more focused on his connection to Mormonism in like a, an actually thoughtful way, but it was actually just kind of a trashy article, in my opinion. I, did you? Yeah, I read it. It was uh, a hit piece, full on. It was like, more of a hit piece and just attacked him personally. And Well, and, and the person had no, not even just attacking them. The, the person... Cl- there was no intention of ever writing an article that was interested in, in Brandon Sanderson. It was like, this person made millions of dollars and, and this is why he's a bad yeah. guy. It was a Wired article, I believe. Yeah. And and it's worth looking into. And, and it reminds me a little bit of this backlash that would come out to Stephanie Meyer. Um, and a lot of it is kind of similar, kind of different. So one of the major things that does get brought up is Sanderson's supposed, you know, poor prose. Now, I think he's 
I think he's. I think that's a little bit unfair. I don't think he has the greatest pros, but I don't think it's awful. I mean, he. Let's just. Yeah, I guess if we were going to seat this, he he comes out and admits that he writes prose that is more approachable purposely. To to talk about him and his Mormonism too. Like when this article came out, I read it and then I was like, let me look more into this person and see because I I wasn't aware of the fact that he said anti LGBTQ plus things in the past. I didn't know that he had that. He did in the past, but then he did walk it back and say he didn't no, no longer believe that. He's publicly come out and spoken out against it. And his connection to the Mormon church has basically been, he wants to create what, what he sees as a better future for Mormonism from within the church, which, you know, that's great. But at the same time, it's kind of, it's, it, you know, in the same way of what you're probably going to get to with Stephanie Meyer, it's tough to be associated with something that's got that much going, you know, against certain types of people. Yeah, I, I mean, so a lot of the pushback against her, I think, is partly from this, but I think it's also, she becomes a very easy target. Um, there is definitely sort of a, a chastity to these books, right? Like, there's no sex scene in this book. Um, a lot of the yearnings and feelings are only like borderline sexual, right? Like it's just, it's just like people are, are attractive and alluring and um, good looking. But, you know, maybe we hear about his like abs or something at one point, but there's just not a lot of like actual sexualized language at all, right? I think there's just kissing, right? It's just kitching and touching. That's a, I mean, not much touching. I mean, honestly, it's yeah. like, it's just you know, stroking chins. Brushing the face. Or yeah, something, it's, yeah, it's very vanilla. Um, and... I think a lot of that, when you look at it through the through the lens of her being Mormon, I think that makes a lot of sense. But it makes her an easy target, I think, for a lot of people to sneer at. Um, and the connection to teenage girls is also something that I think is worth analyzing in the sense that, like, things that teenage girls like in our society are often looked down upon. Um, and I won't claim to be, you know, above this when I was young and you know around teenage years and stuff like i absolutely hated boy bands and i hated all the stuff that was on trl and um lindsey ellis put out this great video where she's apologizing to stephanie meyer because she talks about how in the past she joined this like hate group not hate group in that sense but like people who were haters is what i should be saying um uh, and she like dogpiled on stephanie meyer talking about how she was terrible and like shitting on the work and like she kind of came out and was like, I wasn't really fair and it's kind of fine. Like, um, and I think I want, I want to like use that and, and, and say like, just because it's for girls and, and, um, it's easy, it's an easy target, um, doesn't make it fair. Um, and when you take that and you combine it with obviously a very conservative religious upbringing and a traditional values and traditional gender, gender roles are basically on display here. Um, it's, 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 it's very easy to criticize um, and lose track of the stuff we were talking about before, how escapist it was and how much people really like lost themselves and had a good time with it, even if they don't agree with all that other stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I see people grappling with, with, Stephanie Meyer's work probably in the same way that people are currently with Sanderson. I think, you know, Sanderson's clearly one of the most successful authors currently working. And the only hangup people really have is his prose and the fact that he's a Mormon. And outside of that, it's it's interesting to think of anything becoming popular enough to where it's just, popu you know, popular to hate it. Yes, definitely. And that absolutely applies here. Yeah, that definitely happened with this. And you know, I guess as time has gone on, I agree with you. Like I, I was, I don't know that I was like actively shitting on this, this kind of stuff, but I wasn't, I was like, 
yeah, it probably was actually actively shitting on this kind of stuff at that age. Yeah, but I think it was to. more so from the from the fact that like I just didn't want to give it the time of day. Right, but you don't realize that it's because it's teenage girl stuff, right? And that's that's like inherently uncool. Yeah, or the way you know society treats it. But um, yeah, I mean, looking at it now with the perspective of however long you know, fifteen years, it's really. It's fine. I mean, there's stuff that's just like this that comes out all the time. And, and that's a lot of uh, Lindsay Ellis's video, which if, if I remember, I'll put in the show notes because I think it's a really good one. It talks about how there are so many examples of this that apply to boys that don't get the same level of hate um, yeah. that, you know, this does. Plus, I would I would say that Twilight has a really interesting legacy at this yeah. point. It was, it, was, it was funny talking about legacy and talking about how chaste it is. This opened the door for this fan fiction, Fifty Shades of Grey, which was started out as Twilight fan fiction. Yeah, I've heard that. That explored a very raunchy version of this relationship where there's lots of sex before marriage and BDSM and all this stuff. And how um, it's almost like it was a pent up desire in the fan base to where when this came out and became, I think it was like an open secret that that's what it was. Everybody... (laughs) wanted it and and partly it's i think because of the success of twilight um and it's really interesting because uh, i think it's el james um never actually secured rights to to do this and is sort of selling as a completely independent ip even though it isn't really in a lot of ways and how um stephanie meyer has basically said like she doesn't like that this these like really smutty books are associated with twilight um, but she's also like been pretty cool about it. Just kind of saying like, it's okay that it exists. It doesn't hurt the existence of twilight and not really gotten that upset about it when she could have, I think rightfully gotten, you know, tried to sue her or something like that. It could have been a whole big thing. Honestly, what's wild is that I, I don't I guess I don't know a lot about 50 shades of gray other than that. It's like this, like really smutty sort of sex book. Um, how is it connected? Like, like just the power dynamic. I think she just... took the characters of Bella and Edward and changed it into a, 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 a business owner who's a billionaire, and that's where his power comes from. Instead of being a vampire, I guess I haven't read it or seen it. I'm just assuming things. Um, and, and at some point in the process, it got com- it got stripped away of all the Twilight references. But I think people who are in the know are like, these are the same characters in a sense, and they're written in the same way, which doesn't seem like it'd be that hard to do considering like everything we've talked about with the sort of simplicity of these characters in the bros. We also have only, I've seen more of the Twilight films. We've only read this first book here. I'm curious to know, because I I don't remember very well, how far sexual explicit wise this story will go. So my wife did drop a little bit of a spoiler on it. I don't know if we, should I share it with you? (laughs) Sure. She basically said there's not a sex scene for like several books. And I think it occurs after marriage. Um, okay. So that's like less taboo than it's like yeah. more. It's, safe well, of course, sex. yeah, it's very traditional. But is it is it graphic? So it's it's withheld for multiple books though. So and, and no, I, it's not graphic. I'm sure it's not graphic. Yeah, probably very fade to black kind of deal. I, I don't know. I don't know a lot of the details. Um, but okay, let me get into the de- the development of this book. I think there is also some interesting stuff here. So Meyer claims that the idea for Twilight came to her in a dream. And on June second of two thousand three, it's interesting. She's the exact day. A lot of a lot of dreams in this book too. To mention that, a lot of people getting visions and and people seeing th- like their wishes granted in their dreams. Sure. So she dreamed of a human girl and a vampire who loved her but still wanted her blood. Inspired by her dream, Meyer wrote the draft of what is now chapter thirteen of the book. The first drafts were titled Forks instead of Twilight, and the publisher requested a title change. I think that's pretty funny. So the name of this book was Forks. 
until the publisher got their hands on it and requested a title change. Can you imagine if this book was called? I mean, Forks? it's a uh, pretty evocative. <laughs> makes me think of dinner. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So at first, Meyer didn't even name her two main characters uh, as she was writing it. So she started at chapter thirteen and wrote to the end, and then she only went back later and filled in the backstory. Do you, can you remind what was chapter thirteen specifically? I don't remember exactly what's going on, and I don't have a physical copy to look it up. But that's kind of middle of bookish, so I assume it's like once the relationship was already sort of she's like figured out that he's a vampire. Yeah, and, and then I think that she backfilled a lot of the other stuff. At first, Meyer didn't name her two main characters. She chose Edward, influenced by Edward Rochester from Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, and Edward Ferrars from Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. She named the female lead Isabella, thinking she would have chosen it for a daughter. Rosalie and Jasper originally named Carol, Carol and Ronald. Um, so I, I also read a lot about how Pride and Prejudice was a big inspiration for this book. And how a lot of these like classic Jane Austen style novels would would and like even Shakespeare would affect the future books. Like I think Romeo and Juliet was like a big inspiration for book two or something. And then like Wuthering Heights is one of them. And uh, okay, cool. so so a lot of like this era, which is funny because her writing is really kind of nothing like that. But uh, you know the the love story romance and, romance dynamics are very classical. It's very like a suitor, you know, and and uh, and it's very chaste again in the same way that those books are. Yeah, there's references to Jane Eyre in in the novel as well. Yeah, well, she mentions like Edward is a, a name that keeps showing up in all of these classic romances, and it's right. funny that his name's Edward. Yeah, it's intentional. <laughs> uh, another one that was referenced that I thought was that that I think fits this is I think that this vampires in the story and, and part of the story is kind of superhero like and they they reference like she she references like something about superheroes at one point and he thinks it's funny um but i think that's funny to note too like based on the trajectory of this story and like superhero stories becoming really really popular around this time i i think there's something to that i think like tapping into that mark that that idea at the right time because I, and i think as the movies go on there's more werewolves and vampires and fighting and that sort of thing so it, it like leans into some of that. Yeah, totally. So uh, one thing I think is interesting. She said that when she was writing this, it was for her own enjoyment and she never thought about publishing the work. It wasn't until she showed it to her sister and her sister liked the book and encouraged Meyer to send the manuscript to literary agencies. She wrote 15 letters and sent to, to send out to uh, literary agents. Five went unanswered. Nine brought rejections. And the last was a positive response from Jody Reamer of Writer's House. Meyer had merely sent out letters to literary agents inquiring if they would be interested in a 130,000-word manuscript about teenage vampires. That's what that says. I'm sure... Well, what does that look like? What does the query letter look like? Yeah. Does it not <laughs> include any plot synopsis? Like, I can't believe that this actually met went through with anybody because... Different different age, right? Different time yeah, period. Different time period. It says, luck helped. An inexperienced assistant at Writer's House responded to her inquiry not knowing that young adult books are expected to be about 40,000 to 60,000 words in length. So yeah, this book is much longer than it should be for a, a debut YA novel. Um, and apparently it was like an assistant who didn't know that. It was the only reason that it kind of made it through. Due to that error, Reamer eventually read Meyer's manuscript and signed her up as a client. Eventually, eight publishers competed for the rights to publish Twilight in, two, in a 2003 auction. Eight publishers? That's eight that's publishers. a dream, right? 
Yeah, it's great. I mean, auctions are good because they drive up the price. I just that's a, that that seems like a lot. Is that is, that's abnormal? I would think. I, mean, I don't know. Eight? It's definitely a, it definitely it's definitely a lot for a debut. Uh, abnormal. I mean, like abnormal for a big successful novel. I don't know, but like yeah, abnormal for your average writer, sure, definitely. So Little Brown and Company originally bid three hundred thousand dollars, but Myers agent asked for one million dollars. The publishers finally settled on seven hundred fifty thousand dollars for three books. That's a lot of money, but it's actually kind of peanuts compared to what this book would go on to sell. If you think about it, like the this, this series, like, uh, I mean, she got plenty more money because she, you get royalties. She must have had a back end deal. Plus, she wrote a fourth one. Those are that's an advance against royalties. So you get a $750,000 advance. But then once you get once you've earned that out called earning out your advance, you will then start to earn royalties. So she made plenty of more money on royalties and licensing and all kinds of stuff beyond just that. But that's just for the books. It's still like a great deal. And that was just three books, right? So you three would think books. the fourth book probably was, was a huge Separate deal. Probably, massive deal. Probably yeah. negotiated for a lot more. Absolutely. And she's she also has other books. Like she's written other books in this series, which we can talk about some. Oh, really? Yeah. So she actually recently released a gender swapped version of this, which featured it's like a retelling of Twilight where uh, Edward is a woman and Bella is a man, essentially. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's a hundred year old. Woman. Woman, vampire, woman vampire and a 17 yeah. year old boy yep. that's interesting yep um I, forget, I can't remember the name of it something sun i think I, i've lost it now in my notes but i actually feel like i'd be i'd be interested in re- is it like <laughs> like beat for beat or are we talking i think like- it came out 2020 i i don't know much about it um you know she's also written like she wrote a bunch of side stories that then got later released as a book and um she wrote the 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 um point of view of edward and the events of Twilight got released as a book, I think. So it's just written from his point of view, I think. But it's the same story. I don't know. Or or the maybe it just coincides with like the entire trilogy or quadrology, whatever, the four books. Anyway, she's definitely like revisited this IP a lot. Um, but again, she's also, you know, the author of some other successful series like we talked about. So it's not just Twilight, but Twilight's her big one. So I, I talk a little bit about the general reception of this. It's also in- interesting, I think, briefly. And then there's, there's some, some n- interesting names pop up in here that we can react to. So despite Meyer's success, her novels have been highly criticized. The New York Times called the premise of Twilight, quote, attractive and compelling. However, the review continues, the book suffers at times from over-earnest, amateurish writing, indicating that Meyer relied too much on telling rather than showing and that there were excessive references to Edward's attractiveness and Bella's swooning. An article in The Guardian criticized Bella's character, calling her, quote, a clumsy, selfish nincompoop with the charisma of a boiled potato (laughs) and criticized Edward's portrayal as the perfect little gentleman who constantly counters Bella's sexual advances. This is the kind of stuff where I can't read that kind of criticism. Like, I'll take criticism from people that are that I respect their opinions, but like just random criticism. Well, I mean, I'm sure this is a critic, I'm, I'm sure. But like and that's their job. So like I, I think it, it's I think it's safe. It's I think it's fair. Are you mean like for your own work or just in general? Um, for my own work, I think. Yeah. You know, in general, I think it's it's obviously there, there's it would be a reason. brutal to read that for your own work for sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's a reason why critique it exists in in the art space, and and I think it is healthy. But Jesus fuck, if somebody wrote that about myself, I'd be devastated, man. Yeah, but I mean, like there is. I think there is a natural ecosystem where critics can be as harsh as they want to be and and yeah. they should be allowed to be but um, you tend you know I, mean? I don't know man so people people pile on obviously and you see people go to the extreme for the sake of being extreme sometimes and i think it's, you know yeah. you, you got to stand by your words if you're gonna write something like that you know yeah okay so uh get moving on we got novelist orson scott card 
um, who wrote Ender's Game, um, who is also uh, Mormon, I believe. He says, Stephanie Meyer writes with a luminous clarity, never standing between the reader and the dream they share. She's the real thing. So very complimentary talking about how there's that that you know, she doesn't get in the way of it, which is which is good. In an interview with Newsweek, uh, Jody Picoult said Stephanie Meyer has gotten people hooked on books, and that's good for all of us. So I was talking about before. Comparing Meyer to J.K. Rowling, Stephen King stated, The real difference is that Joe Rowling is a terrific writer and Stephanie Meyer can't write worth a darn. She's not <laughs> very good. King went on to assert that Meyer's books appealed to readers because, quote, she's opening up kind of a safe joining of love and sex in those books. So not very complimentary from Stephen King, uh, favorite of the podcast. Not complimentary, but if it like comes down to it, like I do get where he's coming from. Um, I think it's like to say that J.K. Rowling is like leagues ahead is is interesting, too, because I don't know that those are necessarily like incredibly written books. But, you know, I think, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I think that if walking into this project, I, I think I thought of Twilight in the same sense that Stephen King is talking about it here. And then maybe walk away with more appreciation having read the novel so far. Yeah, I think that's fair. So the Quileute, Native Americans who are, uh, their traditions and stuff are used in this book. I mean, I assume throughout the series. And I do think that's a a cool addition. I don't know if that's, they're probably native to that area, to the Pacific Northwest. They're a real, real tribe in that area. I think that's cool. Is that, is it problematic? Like, do you feel like there's some... Well, let me tell you how they feel about it. Okay, good. (laughs) The Quileute do have a tradition that their ancestors transformed from wolves to people, but most of the descriptions of the Quileute in the novel are inaccurate. The Quileute tribe described her use of their traditions in the books and films and subsequent merchandising as cultural theft. Mm. So not big fans of, of this. Uh, I was curious about that. Yeah. Well, I think it's not. It's just not accurately represented. It's from what sure. I understand. Yeah. So that's unfortunate. P- poorly done. And yeah, uh, appropriation, I think, using someone else's story. A lot of problematic stuff that you could you could talk about with that. Um, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, this is just a brief quote. I'm sure there's a lot more nuanced thought about it that you could get into. Yeah. I, you know, at first I was I was happy with the addition. I was like, oh, cool, you know, native people. I think this could be really, really fun for the story. And then it, as it went on, I was like, is this a touchy area? It feels kind of like, you know, not handled perfectly. Well, and it's probably frustrating because this is so popular and so big. It becomes the thing people know about you. And sure. if that I could see that being very frustrating because it's probably very inaccurate. So they're probably like famous now as the, oh, the tribe from Twilight. And it's like, they probably now don't want that. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And, and yeah. like, I, that does come back to like a little bit of part of the problem with this is how successful it was sort of unexpectedly. Like you can look at that $750,000 advance and say, oh, they knew it was going to be popular. They didn't know it was going to be this popular. No. This is an immensely popular series. And that- Best-selling author two years in a row. Yeah. I mean, and that was around the time of Harry Potter's heyday, too, if you think about it. So the stuff she's... Uh, it's the end of, end of Harry Potter book-wise, but but the movies were definitely doing well. She's she's competing with a lot of very difficult ones to, to win out on. Um, my point is just that, like, sometimes the success it becomes its own thing, and, like, it takes on a life of its own. It took this, like, silly book she wrote for fun, didn't, didn't even plan to necessarily publish ended up striking gold with it right like uh, it's more more popular than her wildest dreams and then all of a sudden it becomes the like topic of every cultural critical essay of the time analyzing pop culture and gender and religion and everything is being put on this 
piece of writing that she didn't intend to hold up to that level of scrutiny. Right. Yeah. So much of this is luck, right? And and writing the the thing at the time in which it's it's primed to be a mega bestseller. And I think that a lot of stuff has to come together. And I think she had she wrote this book at a time in which the market was ready for it. And people were ready for it. There was that level of escapism was wanted and 2005 era, you know, early 2000, like mid 2000s. So many things had to hit just right um, and make this book take off. And, you know, you can be mad about it. You can say it's not fair. You know, books that are better written didn't do as well. I'm sure that's true. Um, maybe they're more nuanced, have a more interesting look at relationships, got outshined by this. Um, that's all fair and that's all probably true, but like this did take off and it did have that level of success. And there are things about it that I think are worth looking at and, and, and analyzing why they hit so, so well and why they appealed to people. I think I'd like to move into our plot synopsis where we can move through the story. Um, I know we're, we're going a bit long, so I'll try and keep it fairly brief and we can just move through the story chronologically. Bella Swan is a 17-year-old introvert girl who moved from Phoenix, Arizona to Forks, Washington on the Olympic Peninsula to live with her father, Charlie Swan, the town's police chief. Her mother, Renee Dwyer, is traveling with her new husband, Phil Dwyer, a minor league baseball player. Bella is admitted to Forks High School, where she easily settles in with a group of friends. A somewhat inexperienced and shy girl, Bella is dismayed by several boys competing for her attention. On the first day of her school, Bella sits next to Edward in biology class, but he seems to be utterly repulsed by her, much to her bewilderment. He disappears for a few days, but when he returns, he is unexpectedly friendly to Bella. Their newfound relationship is interrupted after Bella is nearly struck by a van in the school parking lot. Edward saves Bella, narrowly stopping the van with his bare hands. Bella questions Edward about how he saved her life, but he refuses to tell her anything. What did you think of the opening of this book, the introduction of the characters, and Bella as a main protagonist? Again, I don't think we're breaking new ground here. I didn't find Bella to be really that interesting as a character. I think she's very, you know, there's something to be said for a character that anyone can put themselves in the shoes of, but... She's definitely a self-insert, like, yeah. just supposed to be easy to relate to. As I mentioned earlier, I think the book sort of hits its stride around halfway or maybe a little further than that. This beginning bit, it's a lot of setup of, a you know, someone in a new environment and, you know, she doesn't know how she's going to fit in. She's making some new friends. It's kind of fun, but I found a lot of the stuff early on to be a bit slower uh, up until they introduce, they go to like the, the coast. And I think that that starts to, when she goes on with her, with her friends and meets Jacob for the first time. Yeah. I think that that's sort of, and then the idea of there's a mystery of possibly myth of, of the Cullens. And that might be chapter 13. I would have to confirm it, but that feels like the area of the book. Definitely starts to, starts to finally pick up speed. And I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that this, this first bit was, was a little bit boring to me. I think that, you know, you had a weird character in Jake and, in Edward, you're not sure what's happening with him. Um, and other than that, she's kind of just like, she's getting a truck. She's talking about her 19, whatever, 70 something Chevy. <laughs> Am I, I don't know if I'm the first person to notice this, <laughs> yeah. this vehicle thing, but uh, I might go back through and try to try to spot moments where it pops up because it's it's frequent. Well, maybe it's designed to be like showing because it's like she talks about how it's senior citizen and like, you know, you got to like be gentle with it and all this stuff. And like maybe it's showing her like love of old things. And that's. Okay, kind maybe of that. Okay. Connected to Edward. I thought you were going to say showing Edward's sort of wealth with his vehicle and stuff like that, but I was like Well, it does it does show that a little bit. He has a nice sure. car, yeah. 
but but like her friend has a vehicle they drive out to the coast and jacob's working on a truck that a he suburban, needs parts for and it's just it's I think there's like lot. nine I, kids in a suburban which also like totally evoked my high school because we my family had a suburban we would sometimes take and fill with like fucking nine kids including one in the in the trunk sometimes you know i was also gonna ask you like this i think twilight was one of the first times i started to learn about the pacific northwest honestly like you know i'm a, I'm a young teenager at this time and and then so it's always sort of misty overcast and like this is me learning about pacific northwest what is what does twilight represent in that area now like did did it evoke that yeah Oh, so Forks is a real place. Uh, they have like a Twilight Day or something. There are people who come and like cosplay as characters from the books. Um, it's a whole thing there. Um, I, I didn't do a ton of research into Forks, but I should have. Um, because, yeah, it's interesting. Maybe I'll look more into it for next time when we, you know, I assume we're going to revisit a lot of the stuff in the movie, right? Um, so for me, as someone who lives in the Pacific Northwest now, um, there, I thought she did a pretty good job of evoking some of the appeal uh, you know how green it is how rich it is you know obviously it rains a lot here she gets into that um probably rains it seems like maybe forks is really known for that in a way that like portland isn't but portland and seattle both are known for raining a ton um which she talks about uh i do think she does th- this early part of the book in its defense has a lot of like well-trodden tropes but I think executed pretty well, and they appeal to me and to people on a level um, that they're famous for, right? Like it's a an outsider coming to a new school. She is moving to a new town. She is in a small town, right? She she's like a big city girl moving to a small town. These are all well worn tropes. Um, she's the new kid at school. She also is like clearly a very beautiful girl who is very attractive to all the boys there yet she doesn't view herself that way um so she's kind of like more beautiful than she knows which i think a lot of like girls want to at least like think that they are that or identify that way it's probably pretty common um so there's a certain appeal to it even as we roll our eyes right like as it's hard to talk about these trips without being like oh this is really corny um yet there's a certain appeal to it right and then like yeah I, I'm not, I guess my my point is that like it's it's not that it's not engaging to some it just wasn't to me like I, I really couldn't it, it took me a bit to get into this novel I think because I had an experience of moving to the Pacific Northwest when I was older than Bella but like you know in my 20s or I guess I was yeah I was probably about 30 when I moved out here um, somewhere in that range it is cool to read about coming out here for the first time because it is a kind of a culture shock and uh, you know the the seasons and the the you know, reality of it is, is very interesting. One thing that I, I found in this first part that just really threw me off was it, it snows and she is seeing snow for the first time. And her first reaction is you, this is gross. <laughs> and I was like, are you an alien? Like who, who has that reaction to seeing snow for the first time? Like, come on. Like that's a universal yeah. experience of like it being really fucking cool and magical. It's only later that you like start to think like, Oh, it's actually kind of gross. It's wet and it gets everywhere. But like first time you see snow falling, like in person, it's kind of a magical moment. And it's yeah. interesting that she completely undercuts that moment. We were just in New York and it was like flurrying. And I was like, this is so much fun. Cause it, that doesn't happen here. <laughs> yeah. Especially. Yeah. You know, we're both from Florida. So I didn't see, I didn't see snow until I was probably Bella's age, honestly. Uh, really? We, yeah. We went on a trip uh, up to like Washington, Washington, DC. And I saw it for the first time. That is something and, funny though. Yeah. I've only, I only see snow on vacation. Only yeah. when I leave to go somewhere or visit sure. someone. Doesn't snow in Florida. So <laughs> totally. And, and so, like, just to react to some of this other stuff, um, 
he is showing off his strength. He saves her life, which is like that's a very big trope, right? And it's not the and it's not the last time he'll do that. Um, yeah, multiple. Some times might say, some s- say superhero trope. Superhero right? trope, sure. <laughs> Um, it's yeah, it's kind of like almost nagging her too, in the sense that like she he doesn't like her when he first meets her. He's like aggressive towards her, actively is angry at her, and so she wants to like please him in that sense. Like it creates this dynamic. Yeah, and we come to find out it's because he can't like stand not sucking her blood. Basically, she's his brand of heroin, James. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. They have this whole conversation about it later, and how like she's so unbelievably just like attractive and that attractiveness is tied to his thirst for blood like he just wants to eat her and drink her blood and he's like a- a- uncontrollable almost and he ends- he ends up taking himself away until he can come back later and get some control over himself so i mentioned before like sort of looking at this story and trying to figure out women and trying to figure out what they're responding to when i'm a teenager and and say like well you know what what can i do to seem as appealing as something like this and <laughs> this gets me thinking like were there people who took the wrong messages from this and went sure. the other direction with it and went creepy? You know, this this part of Edward, they took this from the story. And, and yeah. I want, I'm just wondering, like, who, how many people sort of acted that way and saw that as sure. a way to appeal to women? So, so I think it's uh, one of my favorite YouTube channels is called The Pop Culture Detective. And he has, like, these great breakdowns of, like, insidious, problematic tropes across media. And I think he has one about like stalking for love. It's been a while since I've seen the video, but like this is such an example of that and how like Twilight is not alone in doing Yeah, he this. watches her sleep every night. He's in the woods. He's always around. He sees everything she does. He hears everything she says. Yeah, he's obsessed with her. He's spying on her. He's like listening to everybody else thinking about her so that he can like control what's going on. Even though he can't hear her thoughts, he's doing everything he can to like manipulate and control. Um, and it's it's always cast as romantic and not as fucking creepy, <laughs> yeah. which you can easily look at this as red flags, yeah. as our as our uh, listeners have said, so many of them. Uh, okay, let's let's move on. During a campout, Bella meets Jacob Black, a local boy from the Quileute tribe. She learns from stories told at a bonfire with his tribe that Edward and his family are quote the cold ones, vampires, who consume only animal blood. Disturbed and riddled by recurring nightmares, Bella researches vampires. She compares the characteristics of vampires in mythology to the Cullens and becomes convinced that Edward is a vampire. Bella is saved by Edward again in Port Angeles when she is almost attacked by a group of men. Furious, Edward drives Bella away and takes her to a restaurant for dinner and then back home. On the way, she tells him she knows that he is a vampire. Edward confirms her belief and confesses that Bella's blood is more desirable to him than anyone else's and he wanted to kill her on the first day of school. He tries to stay away from Bella to avoid hurting her, but over time, Edward and Bella fall in love. Um, the Jacob's black stuff is interesting because when he showed up, I was like, Ooh, this is the guy I've heard so much about team Jacob, team Edward, you know, cultural osmosis. I've heard about this. There was on t-shirts and shit. Um, Mm -hmm. but I feel like his role is actually pretty small in this book and she flirts with him. Um, he's also like 15. So he's like a lot younger than her when she first meets him. And then he ages up by the end some, but he's, you know, younger than her. All this stuff with the werewolves is mentioned, but like this is not a book that gets into the werewolf phenomenon at all. No. So I assume that's a next book thing. Yeah, I think so for sure. I, I mean, there. It's funny because I have 
little things that I remember from different movies going forward, but I don't know when, what happens where. So, you know, in this book, I think Jacob represents the guy that Bella may have been with, if not for meeting a hundred year old vampire. Who Well, then there's also Mike. Yeah. He's just a regular dude who has no, no chance. <laughs> Mike seems like a regular dude who has no chance. And, and Jacob's <laughs> this guy who like, she kind of has the connection through her fan, like her dad is best friends with him and they see each other and they, they're kind of buddies from that. And then it develops into more than that. She's kind of flirting with him. He's clearly into it. And then, yeah, he's got, he's got enough going on for himself that she sees that as attractive, even though she's not willing to admit it yet. And then I think that develops as we go on. But yeah, interesting how, how little he's kind of in this story. Well, and, and I, I think it's surprising to me because a lot of these kind of books and this kind of fiction, this YA romance for teen girls, are famous for their love triangles. And I was interested by how much this book actually is not a love triangle. It's a direct one-on-one. <laughs> it, is, it is Bella and Edward. That last chapter really leaves us ready to go for a love triangle. It sets it up a little bit for a future book, but like you still aren't getting much from Bella. It just kind of shows that Jacob is interested in her, but she just seems very obsessed with Edward, even at the end. So like, I, I was kind of surprised to see that it was much more one-sided here. And I think that that means that Jacob's got a big hill to climb if he's going to try and butt into this relationship at all in a future book. I mean, not being a hundred year old creep kind of lends himself to being a pretty good option, but you know, Hey, yeah. Um, so let's also, we also got to talk about like the cringiest tropiest. Uh, it's just eye roll. Like these guys are just chasing her and they're all like old timey, like just want to gang raper, I guess is the implication. It's so Jeez. cringy and, and, uh, and I mean, that's the implication, right? I guess I thought like she was think maybe she was going to get mugged or maybe this or that. No, but. no, no. Come on. Edward says that he read their, their minds and he could see what they were planning and it made his blood boil and he was ready to kill them all. Yeah, I guess you're right. That's yeah. the implication is they, they were going to commit sexual violence on her and he saves her from that. And like, it's just so tropey and it's so... I, I, I did the biggest fucking eye roll when it happened, I guess, because it's like she just almost got hit by a car. And then like later on, this is happening when she's just walking the streets of Port Angeles. Like it's so random and unlikely. And <laughs> um, it's uh, they kind of uh, um, lampshade it like because Edward's like, oh, you just keep getting into trouble. You're just uh, a magnet for trouble, you know, but like it really is kind of preposterous <laughs> that this would even occur yeah i mean it's you know the likelihood of something like that happening i guess is not not super high but i i, I took it to be like that they were attracted to her but but not that i don't know i guess i didn't take it that far I, the, the implication i got was that it was going to happen and he interrupted it like she was going to be assaulted and he interrupted it yeah and saved her from from these guys which he continues to do which he, he's preserving her sexual purity yeah. which is is what i think makes this trope so kind of disturbing in a way right like he comes in and saves her from this anyway um <laughs> he takes her to this restaurant they have a you know it, it, there's a lot of stuff here that's kind of interesting i just like learning about the way the magic and and supernatural works in different worlds i find it interesting so i like that we finally get into like how vampires work in this world and how they're not um actually unable to go out in the sun but they just like they sparkle when they're in the sunlight, which is, I guess, draws a lot of attention to them. So that's why they tend to not go out in the sun. Um, we learn that his family and their group 
only feed on animals, which seems way too fucking easy to me. And he kind of acts like all these other vampires don't do it because they just like are drawn to human blood. But like the amount of trouble that you get into murdering human beings versus just eating animals, which almost nobody would, you know, take up arms about. Um, it just seems like a lot of vampires would take this route rather than just this one family. <laughs> I think it's that the Carlisle family, I think that's their all of their names. I think that... It's the Cullens. That's the father. Okay. That's like the father okay, figure, yeah, yeah. but it's the, the Cullens. Cullens. Yeah, my fault. I think that they're operating at like a lesser capacity to other vampires because they're only consuming animals. And that's like the, the implication is that like they're weakening themselves to be better better vampires rather than being the murderer monsters if i sit here and try to think of like if i was this ancient being who would have to especially like in edward's case he can hear people's thoughts um hear people as i murdered them i would probably lean towards you know consuming animals as well (laughs) yeah it's funny because they i don't know they call themselves vegetarians kind of as a joke um, which is yeah, a little weird. <laughs> um, it's yeah, again, like, I guess they're just out there like chowing down on deer or something. <laughs> um, we don't really see this. We We've don't heard see bear. them hunting. Yeah. Bear. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a fight with the bear. I do find the Cullens an interesting group, right? When we got into meeting the family and hearing all their individual stories of how they got turned. And I really liked hearing the father's story, the Carlisle. Carlisle yeah. yeah. And how he's now a doctor, like helping people. And he's kind of been the like moral compass for their group, their coven. He started that sort of movement to, to drink animal blood, but he also his, the way he was turned and the way that he turns others as like a last ditch effort. I think, you know, I think there's something cool about a vampire doing something like that. Absolutely. Um, the, all that stuff was pretty interesting. Like you said, like this, this, this was kind of, um, intriguing to me. It's not that it's necessarily groundbreaking. It's just like, that's the kind of stuff that is intriguing to me about vampire stories. And I wanted to get that. Um, and, and I was glad that we finally got it. One thing I got, I got to say is another sort of criticism I have. We repeatedly hear that Edward speaks in like an old timey way and that he seems like he's from another era and all this stuff. We hear Bella claim this. But mm-hmm. I didn't think there was much in the way of evidence of that in his actual dialogue. He just sounds like a guy to me. Yeah. He doesn't. Totally. <laughs> like, and one thing I'll give uh, Charlene Harris, who wrote the Sookie Stackhouse novels, I'll give her credit for. And I, I believe I believe that vampire is Bill. Yeah. Um, he is described as being this, like, old Southern gentleman. And he's, I think, a similar age to Edward Cullen. I don't know if he was 100 or around that. Um, and I, I felt like she did a good job of actually making his dialogue seem old timey in the way he talked. Um, whereas here it felt like she was just claiming that, but then like de- almost no effort was given to making his speech actually sound that way. Yeah, agreed. It was more like he's great at piano and this like he there's a lot of things like he'll he'll mention something every every once in a while. I only ever saw the show True Blood. I never read any of the novels. So yeah. I read the first book. Yeah, I saw the show. Yeah. And he like in the show, he has that Southern sort of, you know, old timey. I think he's much more convincing as an old man in a younger man's body. Okay, so I just looked it up. Interestingly, Dead Until Dark, the first Sookie Stackhouse novel came out in 2001. Wow. So predates this. Um, You know, it's not that shocking, I guess, in the sense that like this isn't a lot of new stuff. But like, yeah, you know, I guess did the show True Blood follow the, the movie Twilight? 
So and it looks like the show came out in 2008, which would have been around the same time as the Twilight movies, right? The first movie, yeah. So interesting to think about. They're, they're dealing with similar things. One's more explicit. I don't know if the novels are as explicit as the HBO show for True Blood, but... I don't remember, but probably. I, it Definitely, it was on HBO. I actually liked the first season of True Blood quite a bit. I watched it. I think I watched maybe all of them or some of them. Yeah, I watched the whole show. And I thought they were of various quality um, that, would, yeah. you know, but like that I found more appealing. It was more adult. Um, and I thought there was like a real texture to it that was, that you know, really evoked the South and like Southern Gothic style. Um, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, Which, you know, Anne Rice's novel and then also that new version of uh, Interview, Interview with the, the Vampire is yeah. very, very much leans into that too, which I, I, I actually like that a lot about that new show. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, uh, of that. I remember really liking the book, and um, I'm enjoying the show. I'm actually going to be on a panel about that at NorwestCon coming up in a cool. couple weeks here. If anybody uh, is listening is in the Pacific Northwest and you're interested in a con, uh, the NorwestCon convention is, is happening uh, in the first the first week of April, so very soon. And I'm on a bunch of programming items, including one about Interview with a Vampire. So, you know, come say hi. You're going to make a Twilight reference, right? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, we're covering it right now, so it might it might come up. Um, okay, so let's finish it out. Their relationship is affected when a nomad vampire coven arrives in Forks. James, a tracker vampire who is intrigued by Cullen's relationship with a human, wants to hunt Bella for sport. Bella and Edward are forced into to separate as Bella escapes with Alice and Jasper, Edward's brother and sister, to hide in a hotel in Phoenix. James calls Bella and claims to be holding her mother hostage. Bella sneaks out and, and hurries to save her mother. When she arrives, she finds that the hostage claim was a ruse. James attacks her, but before he can kill her, she is rescued by Edward and the, and the Cullens who kill James. However, James is, has already bitten Bella. Edward prevents Bella from becoming a vampire by sucking the venom out of her wound, and she is treated at a hospital using the story that she fell out of a window as an excuse. After they return to Forks, Edward takes her to school prom, as Edward did not want Bella to miss any normal human experience because of him. Bella says that she wants to become like him, a vampire, but Edward reiterates he is against this. Bella's desire to become a vampire increases throughout the series. Edward continues to refuse to turn her, as he thinks being a vampire is being a monster, and he does not want Bella to suffer the same fate. Okay. So I, I was convinced they were going to go to this dance that they kept talking about not wanting to go to. And I was kind of surprised when they didn't end up going. And then they do end up going to another dance at the end. So then I was right in my sense of, like, I knew that they were going to go to this dance eventually. They already talked about the way that, like, all you got to have is the right person leading and then you'll be fine on the dance floor. So I knew that that scene had to play out at some point and we do get it at the end here. Um, but let's talk about James, <laughs> the, uh, the bad guy who shows up and, of course, is the one who, like, in the past turned Alice, um, you know, and that reveal comes and yeah. he's actually the leader of this coven, which I thought was a nice little twist. It seems like it's this other guy, but it's not him. It's, it's actually James. Um, and he just decides I'm going to fucking hunt her down and kill her. And so then actually the plot all of a sudden shifts into another gear at the end. I thought became pretty compelling and she has to flee and like, uh, her whole life is, you know, getting threatened to get thrown into disarray, um, she has to like be pretty cruel to her father um, in order to to sell her wanting to leave Forks, um, and she you know is says the thing that her mother once said to him um, about about life in Forks and yeah it was rough I was actually a pretty emotional moment I, I 
you know, I felt that. Yeah. And um, and then, yeah, James, just the villain kind of arrives and and, you know, throws things into chaos um, here yeah. at the end. This is the character I related to most for some reason. <laughs> for I'm some sure reason. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I did want to mention, I didn't actually relate to that character, but uh, I did want to mention the this fascination with ba- baseball. I was wondering if you saw anything in the background of the- We got to talk yeah, about the baseball you, scene. Anything in the background of Stephanie Meyer? Because there's Bella's mom's new boyfriend or, or husband is a baseball player and then they go play baseball. So there's a lot of a lot of baseball She's stuff. She's probably a baseball fan. I don't know. I, Maybe, I, yeah. I didn't see that, but I, I also like- I'm limited in the amount of research that I'm able to do for these episodes because we do weekly. <laughs> right. Of all the scenes that we have from Twilight, this one sticks in my mind a lot. And the music that plays, it is so funny to me. Oh, so you're but saying they, in the movie. In the movie. But yeah. but this scene is also still pretty funny that a bunch of vampires want to go play baseball and they hide it with a thunderstorm. And Apparently it's, it's just, the sound of their like bodies slamming into each other sounds like No, the, I thought it was the crack of the bat on the ball or something. I thought it was going to be bad, but that that's not what's said. It's like when they collide with each other is what she said is, is what is like thunderous. I thought for sure it was going to be the bat on the ball. Um, but I think it's actually the bodies slamming into each other, at least in, in, as how it's described here. A couple other things that, that we got to rattle off. Um, baseball scene, really bizarre. James rolls up and they kind of protect her. I think that's a fun, tense moment where they're all surrounded by a, another coven. And this coven's clearly, you know, one that's out for human blood. I also want to mention that venom for a vampire is a bizarre choice. It's interesting. It makes them snake-like, and they have these fangs that are kind of snake-like. Like I could get it, and it's kind of like giving a little bit of a sciency touch to it, of like how it's transferred is through their venom. That's how like vampirism. It gets super specific though, because you're like you have to be exposed for a certain period of time, and then like something else has to happen after you've been infected, right? Once you have the venom, well, you have to not die. Like you have to not, you have to not be immediately killed. I think. I don't know. I don't know exactly how the mechanics are. She's not supposed to find out about it, but she hears a lot about it through Alice, who tells her. I think it's Alice. Right. But apparently you can just suck the venom out. So if you're ever bit by a vampire, you just suck on that wound and spit the venom out. I, 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 every time I hear about this, I do have to say that like this is not something you should do with an actual snake bite. It has been many times disproven as being an effective treatment. Don't do it. If this happens in real life, you're just much more likely to cause yourself to have a lot of problems cause infection in the wound um it doesn't actually work um so again she's you're supposed like, to pee on it right like yeah pee on it yeah for sure <laughs> like a jellyfish <laughs> yeah uh, uh just uh, <laughs> a lot of things you're not supposed to do it's so funny that like that's the prim and clearly that's why i think she made it venom is she loved this idea of like edward having to having to drink her blood and then now he, it's like he gets a taste of the forbidden fruit he manages to not kill her, um, you know, in, and even though he says like, oh, it would have been so easy for me to kill you. Um, there is some talk about sex at one point, And he says that like he'll destroy her. Or something. He doesn't think that it could be a thing because he would destroy her if it would happen. He would just he would if he lost control for a second. And I'm sure that that's a an appealing I like that that line is like whoa well i think that's why people have said like and one of our one of our patrons actually went on to say this like it does seem like bella and edward would be be into bdsm <laughs> um i think yeah. because of this this like power dynamic that's playing okay, out yeah. here um you know no shade on that you know yeah her. sure and um yeah it's it's just funny that that i think there was this built up pent up desire in the fan base to where like you could see why like a fan fiction of this would be so popular. 
Yeah. Every, people want a vampire to destroy them, apparently, sexually. I'm sure many do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so talking about this, though, like this this scene, this baseball scene, it's kind of fun. It, it, I, I do like seeing like supernatural beings participating in like a everyday sport or something or an everyday activity. That's always kind of fun, right, to see how they are able to do it. Um, and then this other coven shows up and um, – it's interesting. Like Emmett is is like the more like warlike. Like he wants to fight. He wants to take out this vampire, right? Like he's he's the big one. He's like really strong, I think. Um, and uh, you know they're they're gonna take him down, but then he is. Um, I guess he's kind of crafty. But like this is one of my like I couldn't help but think of like how scary and powerful we've seen vampires be in, in, in literature and how like as villains, they can truly be quite incredible and engaging and how I found James to be so watered down and uninspired of a villain. And he's supposed to be this ancient vampire who's been feeding for like centuries. And yet he's like a dude. He's just a dude. He's just a guy. I don't get any sense of this like ancient predator at all so that's the thing that like i i probably find personally most uh, upsetting about these books and like or just like off-putting sure there's the prose problem already talked about that but the bad vampires the age of the vampires is not being portrayed even even edward i i think she fails to do the thing that is like i think like a base level Show me a hundred-year-old person in a teenager's body because that's interesting to me. And at the only thing that he does, is he talks about like his opinion about music has changed over the years. And also, red flag, he didn't like the 70s. He didn't I know. like 70s music? Come on. He didn't like the 60s, and then he said the 70s were worse. And I was like, Jesus, dude. Like You don't like Bob Dylan, man? There's so much mu- good music in the 70s. Like, so much classic rock came out. George Harrison? like I also like 80s music. Yeah. Though, so Eric Clapton? Like... Jimi Hendrix? But he also, like, loved 50s music or something, which, like... I know, know right? That. Like, that's not my favorite decade of music, but hey. Anyway, um, I just think she failed to, like, truly portray what it would be like to have somebody who is 100 years old in the body of a young man, right? And I think that's something that Anne Rice does really well. I think that's something a lot of other authors have done really, really well. Um, yeah. And and then the villain here, James, could have been so much more powerful. She already introduces this element of you get a certain special superpower that you bring into your vampire life that is like inspired by something that was important to you as a human. Which I actually do like that detail. And it takes different forms. It's cool. She completely loses the chance to show that off in James. He could have had some sort of special power that could have been really terrifying, um, that could have shown the darker element of that, but she doesn't do that. He's just a guy. It ends pretty abruptly, too. Yeah, their their fight is, like, so quick. and The fight happens off page. Like, she gets knocked out, um, and she like hears some sounds and then she wakes up and finds out that they had, they killed James, but it, it basically occurs off screen. Now I will say again, target audience here, the guys reading it, you know, maybe who are really into action movies want to see a big, exciting fight between Edward and, and um, James, but that's withheld 
maybe because their target target audience aren't as interested. I guess in that. it's less. Ab- yeah, t- that tends to be the case. But also, he has abilities and he's strong, and they're all worried about it. If they're all they're checking their bases with Charlie. I, I do think I agree. I think no matter who you are, you're kind of interested to see a fight between him and Edward, right? It doesn't even have to be a long fight, but it's yeah. like, you know, something that, that there's a conflict that has to happen. We want to see it. I want to see it. Come on. I assume they show this in the movie in some fashion. I think so, but I also think it's probably similar to this, so we'll, we'll see when we get there. I'm curious about the movie now. I will say that's one thing that this book has given me. It's given me curiosity in the in, in, at the movie. Um, I think a lot of, uh, you know, because I, I hear that I've heard a lot of the reputation of the movies as well. And I think we're going to re- revisit certain things because it seems like the movies also probably like fail on a lot of filmmaking basics. And yet there's a certain appeal to a lot of people. Right. And like you can come in as a movie critic. Right. As like a highbrow movie critic and talk about all the ways that these are poorly made. But I think there's also like something to be said about the mass appeal of a movie like that. Yeah. Even just the performances, like, I, I can't wait to talk about just that because they, you know, bizarre choices are made and, and there's a lot going on there. So, yeah, but it's cool to see, like, you know, the two leads in, in such awesome ways these days, like to see Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson, like, like sort of living their best life now post Twilight. I think those are both great actors. I think they both gone on to show that they are very good. So it'll be interesting to like revisit that uh, next week. Before we leave the book behind, I do think um, at the core of this at the end, this question of should you want to be a vampire, I think is an interesting one. And no matter, and, and there's a lot of different forms vampirism takes, but the appeal of immortality, but also the loss of your human life, which like Edward points out, like your relationship to your parents, you know, like, your normal human life experiences are going to be gone now and replaced. How do you feel about it, man? Yeah. Would you do it? Let's bring back our segment. <laughs> Would you do it? Absolutely. You know, it's been a little while since we've brought that up. I guess it's like, it's difficult, right? I think you'd want to spend enough time. So you have an immortal partner. I think you would want to spend enough time with them to know whether you'd well, want Well, she wants to be an immortal par- partner. Well, like, and, and that's what I mean. Like, if you have one who is immortal and you would want to know that you want to be with this person forever, no questions asked. But I mean, I'll also, like, there's nothing to say that in, like, 100 years you couldn't decide, like, all right. Sure. Sp- you know, <laughs> I'm going to move on to someone else. <laughs> you could. But I guess if you're doing it for that reason, you should be sure. Um if that's the case, like if the person you are most attached to in the entire world is also immortal, I can understand wanting to see, do that. I, I think that you shouldn't let that affect you at all. You should want to be a vampire absent the romance, which which is like I know that like goes against the whole premise of the book. But like, I think if you want to be a vampire, you should make that choice in a vacuum. That's a good point. Yeah. That vampire can still be killed in some ways. Something could happen to him. Or like, what if you fall out of love with that person because you were a teenager when you fell in love with them? And a lot of teenage romances don't last. I think just give it a couple more. Don't don't make the decision within like three months or whatever this book takes place. I agree. I think Bella is way too quick to make her decision. She wants it. And like, I think she needs to take some time to think about it. Which I think Stephanie Meyer thought that as well. Ultimately, I think that that she recognizes that. Um, But like, man, I I think I would. And, and and not because of not because of this relationship, not because of falling in love. Because of powers. <laughs> I think because you could freeze yourself in your prime, you know, quote unquote, and it makes you more attractive, which is cool. Um, and then also you're a super powered immortal. And like 
these versions of vampires, you can go in the sun. It just makes you sparkle, so it's kind of a giveaway. And you can eat, and you can eat animals, which is one of the biggest problems with vampires is they have to drink human blood. Not in this world. You can just drink animal blood. Yeah, apparently. I mean, you know, I think uh, I mourn a lot of being a mortal, be- being a mortal being, because it's like you don't have time to do everything that life has to offer. You have to pick and choose. And as an immortal vampire, you can get all yeah. that life has to offer. Getting old and frail is kind of shitty, and that's something that all of us face, you know, and uh, and avoiding that and and this idea of like you're not allowed to die and you can't die and you watch everyone die you can choose to die at some point guys you can choose to die and you still can die we see vampires die all the time it's still a possibility you have to get ripped apart and set on fire but like that that's something that that is in the cards for you it's just a lot harder to kill you i guess it's like if you're worried about afterlife stuff is where it becomes sketchy because supposedly vampires are damned right yeah i guess i don't know I, i i have a lot more questions (laughs) <laughs> about life as a vampire. I have a lot of questions and I want to, I would want to know before I would sign up for it. But ultimately I think I would totally take it. And I think most people probably would. Yeah, I think so. You know, honestly, if we're being honest with ourselves, especially if you're like, Oh, my parents are going to grow old. Maybe I can offer them vampirism as well. <laughs> Shit. Let's, let's turn the whole world into vampires. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a bad idea. <laughs> but part of what makes it special is that you're one of a small group. I don't know. It's kind of something kind of true about it too. If everybody's a vampire, then it's not cool anymore. <laughs> All right, man. I think it's a good place to leave the book behind. Uh, I, hopefully, we we handled this with care, in the sense that like I want to like grant it respect that it's due. I do think that if I were to like, because I you know I log all these books on Goodreads, right? And where am I going to come in on this? I think you know common wisdom would be for someone like me to come in and slam this thing with a one or two star rating. I think I'm probably going to give it a three. Um, I think I think it's because it's like. It's fine, and I'm just and only honestly the only reason it's not like a four is because it's not geared at me. It's not the kinds of things I'm as interested in. Um, and if it was, I would give it a higher rating. I, I do think the prose is a is a stumbling block for me. I do think characterization is a, a stumbling block. The characters are not super interesting. No one here is very clever, which is something I love in my books. I love smart characters doing smart things, and we just don't get a lot of that here. Yeah. Even the vampires, like you would expect the vampires to like really be able to outmaneuver this James guy, and they it, it, it like takes everything for them just to keep people alive. None of these characters are like surprisingly clever, which I think they all should be. <laughs> yeah, and one of them um, can see the future, so yeah, you know, real me that. Although, like, yeah, she could see like humans are hard to predict, though, and it's like okay, um, so so what good is your is your power, um. <laughs> But yes, um, ultimately, I think I'd probably give this book about a three star rating um, because there's enough holding it back for me. But also, like, I have to I have to give it some respect for what it was able to achieve. Um, so that's where I'm at with it. I, I don't think I'm going to love the movie, but I'm interested. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, early performances by the actors we talked about. Um, directed by a woman, books or movies made for, I think, the same target audience and feels like a lot of the... Um, essence of the book must have been captured but from the reputation that these movies seem to have is almost identical to the reputation the books have so in a sense it seems like they're of a kind yeah get your emo little black heart ready man all right let's just just gear up for it. i'm ready i also read somewhere that she listened to a lot of like music while she was writing these books and like um just some of the bands that were listed we made me laugh like i think lincoln park was like one of her big inspirations yeah. which like <laughs> you know we were all into lincoln park in this era i think yeah <laughs> um, of course yeah. you know but it, it totally makes sense it's like melodrama 
you know, you know, emo, that kind of stuff. Totally makes sense, man. Anyway, I'm excited for it. We got to wrap this thing up. Um, if you liked this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. If you like our coverage of Twilight, if you want to, you know, encourage us to continue to write this kind of stuff, consider signing up to be a patron. Um, that's how this came about. People were able to vote. Um, so consider that uh, on our Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. We just put out a bonus episode on there for the Pinocchio, the Disney animated version of Pinocchio, which we were able to compare to the Guillermo del Toro adaptation that we just covered in the book. Um, had a lot of fun recording it, just released it on there. So please check us out and support us. And be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those at ink to film. We're also on TikTok and all the places so look for us yeah youtube subscribe to us on youtube and on tiktok as until tiktok gets banned apparently that's a thing that might happen um but yeah follow us on on youtube at the very least if our senators are, are knowledgeable enough to figure out wi-fi we'll we'll it possibly could get banned yeah don't hold your breath man yeah <laughs> um and, yeah and uh thank you to ross bugden for use of our intro and outro music all right that's going to be it for the book Excited to get into the movie, and until next time, keep adapting. Mm-hmm.